The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. heard the language of hardening heart. Oh yeah, the first thing you think of is Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? Exodus 4, 21, 9, 12, 10, 1, 10, 20, 10, 27, 11, 10. I mean, you can see, I mean, it's beginning to accumulate, right? And that, you know, the sheer number of these things makes them stick in an Israelite's mind. 14, 4, 14, 8, 14, 17, the language in all of those places is God saying, I will harden his heart. Then there are also instances where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And, you know, here's the thing. It's not just God who is mindlessly vindictive or something like that, but it's punishment. It's judicial judgment. Uh, Pharaoh is himself guilty. Ex Exodus 8.15, 8.32 and 934. So, you know, it's quite an impressive accumulation of passages. This is perhaps the number one instance in the whole Old Testament of hardening of heart. But now, you know, be, stand with the Israelites in Isaiah's time, and it's, it's kind of horrific to hear this word and realize now it's not Pharaoh, now it's us, <laughs> right? That's, that is an exceedingly uh, ter terrible kind of uh, judgment to say, really, you have descended into being like the Egyptians. Uh, but now, my point then is that this is a factor in not only one instance suddenly in the Gospels, but you've got a pattern, which has uh, now been twice in the Old Testament. If you read through Psalm 78 and Psalm 105 and some other historical Psalms, they go through the history of Israel and they're not very proud of it. <laughs> Uh, they're proud of what God did, but, but, you know, there's quite a bit of meditation on the rebellion of Israel uh, and elsewhere as well. So you could draw those uh, things into the picture eventually. Well, the, the point of all this then is that Luke, by quoting from this material, which evokes then uh, in the distance a whole bunch of instances of, of this kind of thing, by evoking that, it makes us aware of the fact that the principle articulated here is larger than the particular instance, even though the instance, of course, is a sort of preeminent instance. If the Lord himself comes in the flesh, and even that is received with hostility or skepticism, you know, that's a sort of apex of hardening in some respects. But... Uh, but it's of a piece at the same time with a general principle. Okay, so what is the meaning of the parable on this, on this, uh, uh, within this scope of uh, application? It is that prophets, people like Isaiah, like Moses, and apostles like Paul, like Peter, and modern evangelists even. Why not, you see? I think we're really being invited at this point to infer that we've got a principle. Even modern evangelists will have double reception, including 
And here's the, the conclusion then from this particular thing, including some temporary followers. And 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, that I already cited, is relevant. John 15, 20 is relevant. And uh, again, I'm not always interpreting the parable of the sower, you understand, but I'm saying that when we begin to see the principle, we can say, oh yes, here are some other instances. 15, 20, remember the words, uh, this is John, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now, the interesting thing about this, you see, is that it directly establishes a link between what happens in the case of Christ during his earthly life and what happens to the apostles or, or maybe more broadly followers. It's not necessarily clear, at the, but inevitably you're going to draw the inference uh, fairly broadly. Okay, so my point is then that though both that the parable of the sower has a particular focus, you could say, on parables, on Jesus' earthly ministry, but that the principle that is manifested with particular vividness, you might say, in that context is a broader principle, and that the, the, so the parable itself invites you to see that given its context. Now, um, okay, here we are. E, no, D, as a parable about the creative word of God. Now, how is that different? Well, you'll see how that different is different from the others. But uh, in confirmation of this claim, we will at a later point look at Matthew 13.35. It's a key verse. I'm going to postpone that for a minute or more than a minute. But the phrase word of God is, in fact, even more general than gospel proclamation. Certainly, it would include gospel proclamation. But it can elsewhere in Scripture be used to describe, for instance, the creation of the universe. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. And of course, that's taking up on Genesis 1, where God speaks and it came, comes to be. So we're dealing here, we're not dealing with the gospel any longer, we're simply dealing with the power of the word of God uh, as uttered not only to human beings then, but, but even to, uh, with respect to the creation. And this, uh, this, ex this extension of the principle beyond gospel proclamation to creation links together the, the idea of literal seed, which is, of course, founded in creation. Why is it that seeds grow? Okay, and that some of them will reproduce and, and bear a crop. <clears throat> Why? Because God uttered his word at the beginning, establishing that seeds would grow. So at that level of creative word, you see you have a link between the literal seeds and literal plant growth and now the, the word as we... Uh, discuss it in redemption. And that link is a natural one because it is, uh, there's a divine unity between creation and redemption. And the meaning on this level would be that the fall results in the word operating in curse function. But the word brings forth the fruit. The fruit, what? Well, not only of converts individually, but ultimately of the consummation. The fruit is no longer just the fruit of individual hearers but the fruit of the universe itself, you might say. 
well, does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to try to come back to that. I'm throwing that out as an idea but not carefully argued for. And then, uh, because we have that one more passage, and then E, uh, the parable of the sower is a parable about itself. Why? Because the parable of the sower is the most immediate example of the word of God. First, and because it is a special instance of parables in general, right? So conceive, presumably this parable also will be an instance of this dual response and so on. And what is the meaning of the parable on this level? Well, it's very interesting to me what actually happens here in terms of the activities of the people who hear this parable. Because the disciples come and ask Jesus, what is the meaning of this parable? Which is the logical thing to do if you don't understand. Not only to, to, to do something about it, but to have the humility to admit that you don't understand, which of course is involved in coming to Jesus, and coming to the right person to get the understanding. And the disciples, as a result, grow in understanding. Because if you look at what happens in Luke, then, they hear verses 9, and, well, they hear verse 10. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, meaning the disciples, but to others. I speak in parables. They get that, which we've seen is a partial interpretation. And then, apparently, they alone, and not the crowds, hear the interpretation beginning in 8.11. Now, the interpretation of 8.11 through 15 gives them an advance in understanding. And that advance in understanding didn't happen to everybody. Why not? Because not everybody came <laughs> and asked. And you could say, well, that understanding, that gain, is based on the fact not only, not necessarily that they were more humble than anybody else, but that they already had an established relation with Jesus. They already had an intimacy which emboldened them to feel, you know, we can go ahead and ask him and, uh, and maybe get some further enlightenment. Now, there is perhaps something else here, and that is that parables, there's, there's quite a few parables of Jesus that in one way or another get people off balance. And we will discuss this a little later, that have surprise elements or twists or things that are startling in one way or another. But among those may be this very thing of what you might call self-referentiality. If a parable is describing what it itself is doing, it introduces a further layer of potential confusion because it's like the dog chasing its tail of, well, you know, to understand this parable, you have to understand this parable, right? You, you go round and round because if the parable is about itself, and the only way out of that circle is to go to the author of the parable, which is precisely what the disciples did. And the mystery function of parables can partly drive people to pay attention to Christ himself, which raises a further question. Namely, does that mean we ourselves ought not to use parables? Is there something uniquely Christological about 
Jesus' parables. Now, lest you go all the way, let the pendulum swing all the way over there, remember that Nathan told a parable to David. So presumably, you know, it isn't, not all parables for all reasons would necessarily be that. But might it be that parables have a certain mystery element and some of them self-referentiality in such a way that indirectly pushes you to attend to the author? And in some sense, I think the answer to this is yes, that we must be cautious, take account of the uniqueness of the redemptive historical situation, all that, and not necessarily assume that we should directly imitate every aspect of the form of Jesus' ministry. There is a basic sense in which we are not to conceal mysteries because in Christ they are now open since his resurrection and since Pentecost. And Jesus himself, you know, there's that famous passage, I've quoted it before, Jesus himself in John 16 um, says, verse 25, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. And uh, then 29, Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. And there's, I can't help hearing a bit of sense of relief and <laughs> satisfaction <laughs> uh, of, of feeling, you know, we, we want to get an understanding of these mysteries. And there's undoubtedly a difference between Jesus' own proclamation during his earthly life and the proclamation of the apostles in the book of Acts, right? They will blurt out, this is the Christ. And Jesus never blurted that out to the crowds, right? During his earthly ministry, there's a kind of restraint and there's a kind of questioning. And the Jews at one point in John, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> Just, you know, we, we want to eliminate this element of mystery and you read what his response is and it's just so amusing because he sort of does tell them but he, even then he doesn't completely satisfy their, their longing to have you know, everything in black and white. So there is a definite difference there that I think we must wrestle with and in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Whereas Christ, in some sense, yes, he preached the kingdom. Yes, he preached about God. But indirectly, you see, because he's preaching about the kingdom whose own center is in himself and his own work. Indirectly, he is also preaching about himself. And that's not appropriate for us. So I think there must be... Um, some caution about that, although I confess a few times in my life I have employed parables and as long as we're going to take a break in a few minutes I might as well amuse you and uh, you know it's not my style to if you know me you know it's not my style to bring in personal anecdotes very often but but this the whole issue of the style of communication is so important and I don't set myself up as a, either a you know, as a solution to this problem, because I struggle with it too. Of you know, given the openness of the Christian message, how we convey it. Um, but there, there's, there was a time when, through a series of circumstances, I got acquainted with this 
we were having open-air evangelistic meetings on the Cambridge Common, and this group of people were listening, and I went up to them and started, you know, engaging them in conversation. It seemed as if they were interested, but they had their own group, which was into spirituality. I thought, oh, no, you know, what is this? I didn't, I wasn't at all sure. I decided to go and attend their group and uh, see if there was any openness. Well, they were speaking in mysteries. It was some kind of weird stuff. Um, and it was all code or something. So there's this mystery. And I thought, okay, you know, you want mysteries. Because <laughs> I was just praying and wondering what to do. So I'll give you a, I'll, so I, I gave my own parable, essentially, because I thought, you know, this will, this will perhaps turn the conversation. Well, sure enough, it did. <laughs> but from that point onward, there was only one person that addressed me. And I thought, this is a, I've got a hold of the leader, and his, his, his leadership is being threatened. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, but then, essentially, I was able to present part of the gospel because they couldn't interpret the parable. And, and uh, so, in effect, when, when I didn't see an opening, you can create an opening sometimes because people who dismiss something that's straight may not dismiss something that comes around their, 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 um, the side of them. And if you think of what, what Nathan's parable with David was doing, again, it's sort of attack from the rear kind of thing of, right? Of if, if the fellow is not necessarily open, although that's, who are we to judge who's open, right? That's part of the problem. And there can be a sort of arrogance that can creep in on our side. But if there is a struggle to understand and a struggle to get people's ears, then, then I'm willing to consider doing things on a temporary basis. You know, in the end, I, I spoke openly. And I've got a confrontation coming up, something of a confrontation with a fellow in, in uh, my son's band class that is, that is foul-mouthed, particularly foul-mouthed. And I thought, what can I do? What can I say to a person like that? So I'm going to tell him a little story. <laughs> I'm not going to tell him his meaning, <laughs> right? Because then, if I come to him as an adult, he's probably going to turn off right away. If I come to him with a story, then maybe, just maybe, he'll listen long enough so I can say something to him. <laughs> so once has to weigh, what, you know, where's the boundary of where we're using, we're being as, as, uh, as, uh, sly as serpents and innocent as doves, right? Where's the boundaries? I don't know. But I think um, there is both a uniqueness in, in wrapping up this part. There's both a uniqueness to Jesus that must be respected. And at the same time, I guess I'm saying where there are barriers that one senses, it might not be a bad idea to use indirection. Not to permanently hold people captive to your secret meaning, right? That's Gnosticism or Indian mysticism or a lot of other things. But simply so that we, we um, get beyond the barriers that people may have built up. Yeah, well, it is related to the Messianic secret, although people probably know that terminology comes from, who is it? It's uh, Wilhelm Breda. And his idea that this was Mark's invention, 
in order to explain, Jesus really didn't claim to be the Messiah, but we made him Messiah, the church made him Messiah, and we have to explain this. And so he invented the idea, well, you know, that gets into the whole business of are the, uh, the Gospels accurate? And, and uh, so I want to less answer that on the level that the messianic secret, if that's what you want to call it, is not the invention of Mark or of the church. That <laughs> is the invention of Jesus himself. That, that may be part of it. I think part of it is this whole business of hardening and dealing with hardening, right? As Matthew says, because they're hard, I speak to them. And, I, and in order that they be hard, as Luke puts it, both elements are going on, just like with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God hardens him. And yet, in the end, there's a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt. It sounds to me as if there were some people who are not ethnically descendants of Abraham who may have you know, come to faith. Who knows? Right, so, so it's always this thing of, of the the duality of response can come in the midst of this proclamation, and it's true in Jesus' own ministry. Now, I think he's he's not blurting everything out for those kinds of reasons, but it isn't merely pedagogical either, because people say, well, God is a good teacher, and a good teacher doesn't overwhelm his students with stuff they can't understand. And so God did that with Israel, and that's all true, but it's also redemptive historical, as I think you're, you yourself are getting at, in that there, revelation is a matter of organic growth. And it's not, it is, there is a psychological element, yes, they're not ready for it, but there's also a sort of cosmic historical element of saying, this is the way God works, of that revelation is progressive, and it goes in step with the works of redemption which the words interpret, right? So that there is a kind of appropriateness, although I can't, you know, I can't analyze the very bottom all the reasons, but there is an appropriateness that after Christ's work is accomplished in the crucifixion and resurrection, which is at the heart of it, that then it's more fully expounded. So we have the parable as a, as a parable about itself, which raised these questions both about this Jesus centrality in, in the... Uh, uh, the coming of the kingdom and, and about the uniqueness of his parables. And F, the unity of these ramifications. Now, if you want a little diagram, it sort of is an attempt to capture some of what we've already seen. It would be like this, that the parable of the sower is a parable about itself, all right? So we have parable of the sower here, all right? And then we have parables in general, right? as uh, singled out to, for attention. And then we have uh, Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, let's say. In this case, preeminently teaching ministry because we're focusing on words, right? The seed is the word of God. So let's say word in particular. And we're going to talk a little bit, we haven't talked about it, the way in which Jesus' ministry comes to a climax and focus in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then we have gospel proclamation. So you go into Acts and beyond. So all the way through history. And then the largest one, which I really still haven't finished developing, 
is what I call creative word of God, so that creative as well as redemptive words would in principle be included. Now, uh, point F then is that these are not five, what have we got, or six, if you count this as distinct. These are not five or six utterly distinct meanings so that the same thing would have five meanings or something like that. But rather, all of these are in a very profound way unified. You could say, you could speak of there being one meaning if you want, although you could also speak of, of you know, uh, ramified means, in effect, there, there are, when you begin to explore it, there are, there's an overflow. There are things that spring out from it. Um, but they are all a unity for one thing because the seed is the word of God. That holds on every one of these levels, right? And all the instances of the inner circles are, you might say, particularizations or specializations of the outermost circle. Specializations which are appropriate given the context historically in which the parable is given. Now, in addition to this, Luke 24:45 is relevant because it focuses the meaning of this parable along with the whole rest of the ministry of Jesus as fulfilled in his crucifixion and resurrection. Luke 24, 44 and 45 really. 44, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's already referring you might say, well, it's only to those predictions because he did make explicit predictions. These are my words, that it was necessary that all things be fulfilled that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. But you see that understanding, to understand the scriptures, and you've, you know, You've been in my hermeneutics class, you know, we dealt with this in the later one in, in uh, verses, oh, the, sorry, the earlier one uh, in 25 as well, that it's not just a few fulfillment passages, although those are the obvious starting point, but it's the scriptures comprehensively of the Old Testament, that they are pointing forward what? Well, aren't they pointing forward to the entire ministry of Christ? and not just his death and resurrection? Aren't there things, for instance, that are very directly, for instance, there's this, the reference to uh, Elijah and Elisha in, in Luke 4, right? And there's a sort of a Elishianic miracle in the feeding of the 5,000. Elijah had been instrumental in feeding 400 men with, again, a limited quantity of food. So, so isn't Jesus' earthly ministry about the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Well, yes, it is. But you see, the implication of this then is that the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry is also on the way to the crucifixion and the resurrection because of the centrality of the resurrection. Gaffin's whole book, I'm going to pull in, right? Because of the centrality of the resurrection in the redemptive history, in God's plan for the entirety of history, we can expect that Jesus' teaching during his earthly life will relate to all of history. How? But through its fulfillment in the resurrection. Now, what's special about the crucifixion and the resurrection? Well, one of the things that's special about it is this issue of understanding. If you're a disciple 
of Christ during his earthly life, you understand after fashion, after fashion, and you come to the crucifixion and you don't understand. And all the disciples fled, even though Jesus has been instructing them. So the issue is, will you understand now that this crisis of understanding has come? Because the crucifixion is a disappointment, to say the least, and it is a great shame. It is a scandal, right? As Paul points out, it is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is folly to Greeks. If you don't understand this one thing, none of the rest is going to do you any good, <laughs> in effect. But that means, you see, that the issue of fruitfulness and understanding, right, and this growth and understanding comes to a head precisely in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Whether the seed is going to bear fruit in the end comes down to, are you going to understand this one thing? Okay, now, so of course, if the parable is about the reception of the word of God, it's preeminently then the reception of the word of God about the crucifixion and resurrection. And that word as saving word, right, and is pointing to the saving acts, is central to all of redemptive history. So it is no wonder that the parables have a potential for broader application, right? It's a both and thing of saying, Jesus was concerned to address people in their unique redemptive historical setting as the kingdom is dawning, but you know, many things are not yet open. It is addressing that, but is also, uh, because of its uh, focus on the kingdom and on the realization, inevitably on the realization of the kingdom in the crucifixion and resurrection, of broader applicability. Now, if this is all so, then it means that there is a unity to, say, the parable of the sower, even though we have this breadth of application, if you want to put it that way. Now, how does this unity differ from a strict one-to-one -one allegory, right? Now, we've had this thing, right? We've had it in the back of our, our uh, storage bin of the idea, the extreme of allegorical interpretation says every detail has some symbolic meaning. How does my approach differ from that? First, that there's no absolute principle saying that an independent symbolic meaning must be given to every element. And I haven't done that with every element, even in the parable of the sower, although the parable of the sower is quite, quite detailed in the interpretation, right? A lot of things are given symbolic meaning. But uh, there's no requirement that that's so. But the other side of that is to say, every detail contributes to the whole. A story is what it is because it's made up of the pieces that compose it. And even a detail like, say, the two coins that the Samaritan gives to the innkeeper, what does that do? At the very least, it makes vivid and specific, helps you to imagine the detail of care that this man had for his neighbor. So it reinforces the meaning, even though you don't have to say, well, you know, is the, do the two coins stand for two of Paul's teachings? You know, that doesn't need to be in order to say, that this has a significance. It's simply, it hasn't got a separate symbolic meaning, but it still contributes to the story as a whole. So I'm saying that. Second, I'm saying that there are allegorical elements in Jesus' interpretation in Luke 8, 11 to 15 in particular, 
right? Many details are given. The problem comes if we extend this blindly to all parables and even to every detail, right? Because I think you could find some minute detail somewhere in that parable that isn't given a special meaning in the interpretation. But even if it's so, that every detail is given a symbolic meaning in the parable of the sower, does that mean it's so in every other parable? Well, not necessarily. And we're going to struggle, continue to struggle with, well, when do we give a symbolic meaning to a particular detail? But we don't blindly extend the principle to all parables, and we don't blindly extend it to all scripture. That is, pretend that all scripture is allegory, right? because that washes out the distinctions of genre. We respect, we want us to respect those. And third, the meaning of a parable is something that unfolds in history. Luke 24, 45, the passage we looked at, Jesus is teaching his disciples in such a way that they understand more. That kind of growth in understanding is one of the things that the parable of the sower is about, right? But you don't see exactly what form that growth is going to take until you see the conclusion of the story of Luke, you see? Right? You don't understand everything of what are the, all the implications of that until... You see Jesus doing this teaching and you say, well, you know, aren't the disciples growing in understanding? To them, now they have the secrets of the kingdom of God under their belts in a way that they did not even, you know, before being Jesus' earthly life. There's an unfolding and it's a kind of, if you will pardon the metaphor, organic growth of understanding. <laughs> it is really analogous to the growth of plants. It's organic growth in that there is a sort of naturalness to it, and it's sort of the whole, it's hard to separate, and so well, now I learned just a bit of information here. And fourth, there is, if you will, a 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold growth of meaning. If I'm, I'm using, of course, the language of the sower, right? But what I'm after is to say that in fact, when we go through the story and we look at its end point, we can see much more than we did at the beginning. And that is actually true. I mean, it's actually true of the Christian believer as you look and you see what the disciples understood and what has actually happened in the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's a growth in meaning, and yet also remain, there remains an organic unity. Okay, now, this is point... D, implications for occasions when a parable is found in different contexts or with different nuances in different Gospels. Now, we've already seen that a little bit, right, with this whole business of is this haughty because or is it hina in order that or some other sense of hina. But there are other challenges in other instances. The parable of the lost sheep, for instance, occurs in Luke 15 and also includes occurs in Luke in Mark sorry in Matthew 18 and the thrust of the parable seems to be somewhat different in the two instances now i'm not putting all my eggs in the basket of thinking this is the same incident jesus may have told two related parables um, but we're going to reflect but those problems crop up, the point is. And people, you know, especially critics, uh, are disposed to uh, not only worry people, but to challenge uh, the authenticity of certain parts of the Gospels on that basis. 
here are some observations that I want to make about that. Number one is that Jesus himself intended an unfolding of meaning in some sense. That is, the parable of the sower, if it's a parable about parables and understanding parables, then it's saying you don't necessarily get it all at once. You don't necessarily bear fruit just like that. It's a matter of time. And these related sayings, nothing is hidden that will not be revealed or a secret that will not be known, those things. And to you it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. All those uh, suggest that Jesus under, uh, intended some elements. Not you couldn't understand at all. And the disciples, in a sense, understood because Jesus said they knew the, they knew the secrets, the mysteries. But that meaning unfolds. And that he intended that this meaning should unfold ultimately in terms of his own death and resurrection. Why do I say that? For one thing, because they are parables of the kingdom. You see, and the kingdom comes to its fruition in the death and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection and ascension being the time in which Jesus is enthroned as king. And the, if they're parables of the kingdom and the kingdom comes to fruition in the resurrection, then naturally they're going to be better understood in the light of that fulfillment, just as prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, can often be more deeply understood in the light of fulfillment, which doesn't mean it's not understood at all, right? It is understood to some extent, in, even in its Old Testament context, enough to nourish people, enough to give them hope, and so on, but not enough so they can say, oh, I told you so, <laughs> uh, in terms of feeling that, that we have... Um, captured it all and there's nothing new. The parables, in other words, have a seminal character. They, they, they get digested over time. So um, that's one implication. Second, in some cases, there are editorial comments added by one of the evangelists. For instance, Luke 18.1 and this is really going to be, what do we make of these editorial comments? 18.1, he told this parable to them so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's very clearly Luke writing, indicating some of the force of the subsequent parable of the um, widow and the unjust judge. Or Matthew 13.14-15, and... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in them, which says, and then Matthew quotes. Now, Jesus himself quoted part of this in his words in verse 13, but now it's Matthew's words. I mean, Matthew makes no bones about this, and he quotes more fully, or does he? Now, I'm looking at this again. No, maybe not. It's not clear. Jesus... Um, this still might be Jesus' words, and Jesus' words continue in 16, right? So, but the question is, you don't know for sure. I mean, it doesn't say, because you have no quotation marks, right, in the first century Greek. <laughs> you don't know for sure. It may be that you, this is just a direct quote of Jesus' speech. But the other Gospels don't include this full quotation. It may be that Matthew, in effect, is adding a further comment of that kind. Or uh, another phenomenon that we have uh, met, the possibility of grouping material together in certain ways. For instance, uh, 
in Luke 14, 34 to 35, there is a statement about salt, which comes, yes, uh, salt and he who has an ears to hear. That saying about salt is found in different contexts in, in other synoptics. Well, it, it's a kind of mysterious statement if you have no context. And what, what do we make of it that Lucas put it, or as Jesus put it, you know, and the critics, of course, because they're not certain how much is editorial, are likely to wonder in what respects are the gospel writers, like Luke and Matthew, uh, doing particular things in terms of meaning by grouping things together. Matthew 13 has a whole series of parables grouped together. Matthew 18 has a whole series of teachings with regard to shepherding and caring for fellow believers all in the same passage. Matthew uh, 10 has uh, instructions about the uh, going out of the 12. And of course, there's a Sermon on the Mount. Are these groupings partly Matthew's doing uh, rather than simply things that Jesus said one after the other in the same order that Matthew has given them to us. Now, critic, this history of New Testament criticism is full of instances where the critics go to work trying to recover the original words of Jesus in their original historical context. So what they will typically do with this very kind of information that I've mentioned to you is to try to figure out how it got where it is now on the basis of something else earlier, okay? And they'll say, well, Matthew added this, and Luke added that. And Matthew grouped this material together. But now what did it mean before it was grouped together? Now, the difficulty with this, several areas of comment. One is that many times the arguments trying to do this reconstruction are speculative. They're almost always speculative. And many times the arguments are, have holes in them. That is, they make unfounded assumptions or there's you know, other possibilities that are ignored. Or they are tangentious. That is, that they try to pull the interpretation in a certain direction. For instance, they eliminate the interpretation of the parable of the sower. Right? As we mentioned, Dodd thought that the interpretation that's given in the, by the gospel writers is, is later. Right, That isn't the actual words of Jesus. And one of the effects of doing that, of course, is that you are no longer so clear as to what the parable meant because you don't have an interpretation anymore except a secondary, what you think is secondary. All right? Now, the upshot of all this is I think that many times they succeed in some people's eyes, in throwing doubt on the Gospels to a certain extent, but don't result in solid conclusions, right? Because there's so many ifs and, and uh, questions about is just just the most plausible way, but is it the only way uh, of re reconstructing what happened? But let us even suppose, again for the sake of argument, let us suppose that in a few cases, the critics are actually right that, or some critic here and there has got it right and said he's managed without necessarily knowing for certain, but he's managed to reconstruct pretty accurately both the words that Jesus used 
and the original historical context in which he used them. I'd say even if that is true, the Gospels themselves have the last laugh on him because Jesus intended that his parables' meanings should not, as it were, stay completely static. Right? They were not intended to be the last word. They were intended to be part of a development that was leading somewhere, and where was it leading? To the crucifixion, to the resurrection, and to the Gospels themselves. Jesus intended, in other words, that the meaning of his parable should unfold, and it should unfold, seminal character again, and it should unfold into fruitfulness by being further interpreted by inspired interpreters in the early church in the context of the knowledge of his death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, all right? So, to try to go backwards again in redemptive history, to peel off what the gospel writers have done, invites confusion about the meaning, as we've seen, because you, there's a lot of uncertainty that arises, and in a way, already mistakes the intention of Jesus himself. You get that? Right? If he intended that this should happen, then, you know, to try this process of trying cleverly to get back and thinking that you've got then something of an authentic meaning already is misunderstood that that, that meaning was not intended to stay there, as it were, independent of, of a later revelation. Okay, And that process then of mistaking the intention of Jesus, that in turn leads to a fulfillment of the curse function of the parables. In other words, if you don't follow the intention of Jesus the way he intended it to develop through the crucifixion and resurrection, if you're not trusting in that, you will inevitably misunderstand and you will be, to one degree or another, blinded in that misunderstanding. So I'm willing to say that the historical critics are like the rocky ground, that they may think that the parables support them even. Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And I, at this point, want to reflect a little more on the wisdom of God this is point three, that when I started thinking about this and I began to see that at least what I see is this unfolding of meaning, that then under, if you want to keep subpoints uh, about God's wisdom, that A, I think that the Lord set a trap for human cleverness something like 1,700 years before it happened. It's as if God is a chess player who lets you know all the rules of the game, and that's like the rules of human language, all right? So you have all the rules of human language. Not only does he let you know the rules of the game, but he tells you all his moves beforehand by recording it in Scripture 1,700 years earlier than the rise of historical criticism and challenges you to play him to see whether you can outfox him in terms of your understanding the meaning of these texts. And I think he trapped a lot of people. And he may trap you and he may trap me too if we're 
puffed up. And if we're convinced of the superiority of our own wisdom. First uh, Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, you probably is a familiar text to many of you, talks about the wisdom of God making, uh, the foolishness of God being wiser than the wisdom of man. And uh, it's something of the same thing, although it's in the context, of course, of the God, directly of gospel proclamation. But the... Um, there are similarities in thought. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Um, Hosea 14.9, who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. John Frame, years ago, was my teacher in the doctrine of the Word of God, and he said, when you read the Bible, or even when you leave it on the shelf, you are not the same. Because either you are blessed or you are cursed. You become worse <laughs> through reading it if you read it in rebellion because, of course, you're more guilty. And I think the principle is broadly applicable to the Word of God in general. But the point is, I think it is also true of parables, and it is true of the way in which people may be caught by their own cleverness. The judgment of God is on people who try to be more clever than the Gospels and more clever as it were, than the unfolding of redemptive history in its power and wisdom. But the judgment of God, for the most part, lies hidden from the world. The misinterpreter of the parables may think that he understands the parable, right? And he may think, if he's one of the scholarly elite, that he understands the better parable better than almost anybody else. So the judgment is hidden, but it's hidden like leaven. It works its way through the world. I mean, here we're using parabolic language again, right, to say judgment may be hidden, but it will become manifest. I've lost count of my uh, points under this, but I'm still under the wisdom of God. I, what I'm claiming, to put it another way, is that people who try to master the Gospels and the parables in particular with an autonomous reasoning are caught by the traps set by God and become blinded and come under the judgment of God without necessarily recognizing it. Their own cleverness can be turned upon themselves. And I think there are some practical lessons here. One is to ourselves, and I'm counseling myself as well as you, to not be too hasty to come to the defense of the Word of God. There is a proper kind of defense, but sometimes I think, I've seen it in myself, I get into a mood, a feeling, if I don't defend it, it will collapse. No, it won't collapse. <laughs> because God is, is capable of terrifying judgments against those who attack His Word. Romans 3.19 says that every mouth may be stopped. And Malachi, uh, Micah 7, 16, 17, the nation shall see and be ashamed 
they shall lay their hands on their mouths. They won't have anything to say, you see. They're ashamed and they're convicted. Zechariah 2.13, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. And I think this judgment of God is actually then a kind of prefigurement of the smoke rising in Revelation 14.11, the smoke of those who are convicted by their own sins receive the judgment of hell because uh, it is a terrible judgment to be in the blackness of lack of understanding. And all this by the power of Jesus' word. John 12, 48. John 12, 48 says, there's a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. It's, it's the word itself. I mean, it's not simply Jesus saying, well, I will condemn you, but the word will condemn him. And uh, John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. We can see judgment if we have eyes to see it, even preceding the final judgment in people's response to the word of God. Now, is this the meaning of a sweet, simple parable? Well, it's not simplistic, the parables. This particular parable is over, and it's not sweet either for those who are perishing. And, and you know, the message, the, the message of the king is, in effect, you submit to the king or you perish. And, uh, and Luke 20, 17 to 18, in a parable which is easier for the scribes and the Pharisees to interpret, um, Luke 20, 17, concludes after the parable of the tenants, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. In fact, you see, it's Christ himself ultimately, but then also the word of Christ will crush all opposition. I'd like to go back to the statement in Luke 10 once again. Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. I think the implication of that is that the simplest Christian can get more real food from the parable of the sower or other parables than the cleverest, Christ, cleverest critic. And why? This was your good pleasure. It's sovereign election. It's God showing his glory, but also tolerating no rivals in terms of glory in people's cleverness or in their standing. Okay, we are on um, uh, Roman numeral C. No, we got past that. Uh, e is what I promised earlier to do uh, some further reflections on uh, Matthew 
13, 34 to 35. And D, we what I finished up doing in D, uh, I'm not sure whether it was all that clear. Uh, so let me try to recap that a little bit. Under D, my point was that, uh, as I see it, the parables of Jesus were intended, at least at times, not to yield all their meaning or all their implications at once. They are part of a development in redemptive history. You can say, in some ways, you can say similar things concerning Old Testament prophecy, that they're not uh, like a newspaper reporter after the fact. They don't tell you everything until later on when you see the fulfillment then you understand more fully the implications of what was said. It's not that what was said at an earlier point was totally obscure. It's enough to encourage and challenge and otherwise exhort and teach people in its own time, but without being in every respect complete. And those of you who've been in my hermeneutics class may recall that we talk about meaning as something that everybody knows about and everybody works with all the time, right? Uh, and as long as you don't think about what it is, you understand it. It's like what Augustine says about time. As long as we don't think about it, we know what it is. And when we think about it, then we can't say what it is. But, but more than that, I think, when you begin to analyze it, then in fact, the meaning of a novel does not consist in a kind of mechanical addition of the meaning of the individual sentences. There is an element of wholeness that is, again, we experience all the time, but which is very hard to put one's finger on in terms of how can it be that the meaning of a novel is not just sort of the kind of mechanical addition of the meanings of the individual sentences. Well, it isn't. And so the meaning of scripture, I would argue, is at least, of course, the meaning of the individual parts, but it is more because of the way in which the parts fit together. And they fit together not only literarily, but historically, because the scripture, of course, is written over uh, centuries of time. But now you see, Jesus' own discourses and teaching during his earthly life are not and were not intended by Jesus, even at the time, to stand forever by themselves, just in isolation from anything else God had said before. And clearly, he builds from time to time on Old Testament. But also, then, what God would say after, that is, through the apostles whom he commissioned. So if all that is true, then it appears to me that God has used this whole situation and a kind of built-in seminal quality to the parables to trap a whole host of historical critics who have thought that the way to understand Jesus was to peel off all the layers of interpretation. And, and again, there's some caution there because you can say, well, uh, I myself am peeling off things in a sense, right, by saying that G not everything was immediately transparent to Jesus' first hearers that would have been visible to us at a later time. So I'm trying to be sensitive to a historically developing revelation in a way, I think, that the Bible invites us to be aware of that. And so there is a role for thinking about the differences between Jesus' own circumstances and our own, and so on, so on. But the point is that smart people 
are tempted, perhaps more than anybody else, to be too smart for their own good, <laughs> as it were. To you, you know, that that's an area where sin gets in, and people um, then think that they are recovering true meaning when they're peeling this off, and actually they are misunderstanding the intention of Jesus, and at the same time then being uh, caught in judgment on their own pride. And I say they, but it's an affliction which can beset us all. Now, that's part of the point then of D, and that, uh, that salvation is of grace, and you might say and part of that is wisdom is of grace <laughs> too, that it is not to the wise of this world. Uh, then E, exegesis of uh, Matthew, we're finally to the, the next section then. Exegesis of Matthew 13, 34, 35. Let's uh, look at what we have there. Uh, and uh, Matthew, now again, I've been jumping around between the Gospels, and <clears throat> we've got to deal with each Gospel in terms of its own wholeness. But Matthew uh, is known for being concerned with the relationship of Christ to the Old Testament and Jesus as fulfiller of the Old Testament. So it's appropriate that a passage like this occurs in Matthew in the context of the parable of the sower and other parables. Okay, so there's the parable of the sower, uh, first, which is given first in Matthew 13, uh, the interpretation of it. Then, verse 24, the parable of the weeds in the field, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. And then after that, verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. And it makes you think right there of what Luke says about, uh, and Matthew as well, earlier. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, verse 11 of Matthew 13. And for others, they are in parables. To the crowd, he spoke in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. And that's a Matthean phrase. Thus was fulfilled what was said often by the prophet Isaiah, or so, quote sometimes a specific prophet. In this case, it's interesting. It's not actually from the section of the Old Testament known as the latter prophets. It's from the Psalms. What was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So there's already an interesting point to be made by the fact that a quotation from Psalm 78.2 is said to be what was spoken through the prophet. And some of you may remember uh, Matthew 11:13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Well, the prophets prophesied, surely. That's what prophets do. But he doesn't say only that. The law prophesied. How did it prophesy? Well, you know, that bears some thinking, right? Because most of the law is not in any direct way promissory or predictive. There are, on occasion, promises or predictive. But Matthew is thinking there of the fact, not only prediction short range, but clearly prediction concerning the coming of Christ. How does the law prophesy? And I think it's then uh, an indirect 
that through its shadows and through uh, its incomplete meanings, it points forward to the coming of Christ. But now you see that means that the Psalms also presumably can prophesy, although Matthew doesn't say so. But then he calls the author of Psalm 78 the prophet, hinting that Psalm 78 was also looking forward to these days. All right, so that's a part of the picture. Now, let's look at Psalm 78 too. Well, and not only verse 2, but we want to see what's happening. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. What things? We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Well, it's reflecting especially on Mosaic times, but then how it was to proceed forward from those times. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds and would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God. Now that sounds like the wilderness, whose spirits were not faithful to him, the men of Ephraim, Though armed with bows, bows, turned back on the day of battle, they did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. Well, what incident is it talking about? It's hard to say. It may be during the time of Joshua or Judges. Judges is the obvious time. They forgot what he had done. And then it recites the miracles in the land of Egypt. Uh, okay, and goes on for quite a bit. Um, and then you, if you turn over, you can see this is not a, a short psalm. It goes through the miracles in Egypt um, and uh, the rebellions in the wilderness, uh, verse 32 and following. And then um, a more back a return to the uh, miracles of Egypt once again in verse 43. They did, did not remember those miracles. Uh, then... And then verse 54, he finally brought them to, his, to the land. They drove out the nations. But verse 56, they're rebelling again. So this is uh, looking. And then he forsook Shiloh, verse 60. It goes all the way up to David, verse 71, 70, 70 to 72. Um, quite, it is one of the so-called historical psalms that uh, go through a lot of the history of Israel. Well, now back to verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known. What's he talking about? All right? My conclusion, in the original context of this psalm, it means the content that um, is spoken of is a recital of the events from the Exodus to the time of David. And it is titled, A Maskil of Asaph. Now, this of is most probably authorship, though people have suggested it's a Psalm 2. It's le in Hebrew. A Psalm 2 Asaph, dedicated to Asaph, right? So it's at least theoretically possible that it's brought in that. It doesn't much matter. I mean, it's an inspired author. That's what you need to know. But I will call the author Asaph. Uh, Asaph tells you things 
that we have heard and known before, verse 3, then how is it that he will utter hidden things? How can they be both known and hidden? Well, they are known in the sense of Israel's history is known, but there are further things to understand, evidently. There are, if you were, mysteries, and I believe that there's a chidah is the underlying Hebrew word. It's a enigmatic. It's things that are that uh, are not completely evident. And I believe under parallel parables, the underlying Hebrew is a mashal. It's that word, right, for proverb or parable. See, it isn't necessarily in this context literally a parable. I mean, it's. If this is a parable, what is the parable of, right? It's not a fictional story to begin with. It's the story of the actual history of Israel. It's not what we would call a parable. But it is a mashal, or mashalim, pilpural, in that it's something that he's asking you to meditate on and that has some depth to it. So there are mysteries then in Israel's history, mysteries evidently relating to its significance. And one suspects that those mysteries have to do with the fact that despite having this history known to them, that they haven't learned its lessons, right? Because part of the point is you keep rebelling, you keep forgetting. But that verse 2 is itself a bit enigmatic, isn't it? Because you think, well, what, why, what is he saying? Right? In what sense is this mysterious or hidden, and in what sense is it known? But that will give us at least uh, a, a taste of what Psalm 78.2 is about. And I want you to notice one other thing about it. And this is all, oh, if you're taking notes, this would be number one, the original context, all right, of Psalm 78. Uh, and then under that, A would be, of course, the, the, what he's talking about. But B, note this, this one phrase, from of old. The underlying Hebrew word is kedem, which is it's actually a pretty good translation, from of old. Kedem means uh, it, you would use it for old things, but not eternity. Olam is more in perpetuity. This is from ancient times. And the ancient times are the times going back to the Exodus, okay, which is essentially where the narration starts. Now look at Matthew, back to Matthew. Matthew 13, and this is going to be point two. What is Matthew doing with this passage? And Matthew, if you've studied how Matthew uses the Old Testament, this is not so untypical. Matthew does things that take some thought to understand. Uh, he's got this word for prophet to begin with, which indicates that, suggests that there's more to it than just a historical backward look. There is also some kind of forward thing as well, but in what sense? Then he has the quote, I will open my mouth and parabolize in parables, right, which now Matthew relates to the, what we know as parables of Jesus. I will search out things hidden, so far so good, apokatabales kosmu is the Greek, 
from the foundation of the world. Now you can see that there seems to be some element of change there. And let me make some points about that. A, there is a textual problem. Just when the going gets good, <laughs> right? If you look in your Greek, if you have it here, maybe some of you haven't brought along. Apo kataboles kosmu. I'll put it on so everybody can refer to it here. Apo kataboles foundation kosmu. And the textual problem is here. Not all manuscripts have Cosmo, and uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, UBS Greek text gives it a C rating. Um, the great majority of manuscripts have Cosmo, but uh, it's omitted by B. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus second corrector. And uh, two old Latin manuscripts and one Syriac. Not very impressive external evidence, although the thing is they probably reckon that that's the more difficult reading. That Catabolace by itself from the foundation doesn't seem to be sufficient, right? So you fill it in with Cosmo. Well, I'm not sure which is correct. You could argue that the scribe makes it easier by filling in Cosmo. You can argue even that the scribe took it out because it corresponds less well to Psalm 78 if you put it in. Um, whichever way it is, the meaning is essentially the same. That is, the katabales is, I think, to be understood as short for katabales kosmu, even if the kosmu is not in the text. Matthew 25:34, for instance. Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to his right hand, to those at his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Apocatapolis Cosmo. See, it's a kind of fixed expression. And even Apocatapolis would be shorthand for that. Catapolis foundation is not the natural thing you would use just from of old. Aparches for instance, uh, from the beginning, or something like that, uh, would be available as a possibility. But this is what Matthew has put in. So how do we understand this? Well, point uh, B then is that there is a possible allusion to the language of Proverbs 8.23, even though the bulk of it is a quote from Psalm 78.2, it's possible that Matthew wanted you to see that Psalm 78.2 is to be drawn into connection with Proverbs 8.23. Now, what does Proverbs 8.23 say? In the NIV, it says, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. That is, speaking of wisdom. And the Hebrew has... Mikadme aretz. Me from kadme is that same root, kedem, you see, from of old, but from the beginnings, if you translate the plural of it, from the beginnings of the earth. 
So you see that, you know, that is more like Katabalekosmu, right? And the fact is that the telling of Mushalim, of Proverbs, is a wisdom function, right? So Jesus is, is engaged in a kind of wisdom teaching here, and it's natural to think of Proverbs as part of the background. And here's this wisdom was appointed to be with God from the foundations of the world. Are we intended to think of that? You see, it's not just a similar phraseology, but the context is not altogether alien uh, from what you've got in Matthew. So if that's so, and I think it may well be, then the evident implication, and this would be point C, is that Jesus' wisdom in parables is the wisdom of God, and surely that's implied by the broader context of, of Matthew, who is definitely saying that Jesus is God's spokesman. Jesus' wisdom in the parables is the wisdom of God, and that this wisdom, of course, in the end, goes back to creation. Job 38.4, remember that this is the famous appearance of God to Job, uh, and Job has asked to be able to uh, ask God questions and get satisfaction. And when God appears, unfortunately for Job, well, you might think it, he might feel it was unfortunate. Rather than asking God questions, God is going to ask him some questions. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? First question. 